This is the Worth Recovery Podcast, featuring women in addiction. my friends, to the Worth Recovery podcast, podcast featuring women and sex addiction. My name is Amy. I'm your host here, and I've been sexually sober since December 2nd of 2012. And I'm really excited today to have a guest with us, uh, Marnie. You know what, Marnie? I should have asked you, pronounce your last name for me. <laughs> it's furry. furry. It's pronounced okay. like referee, except okay. just furry. Okay. You are not alone in that. <laughs> I say it and spell it all the time. Yeah. Okay. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> I'm excited to have a special guest with us today, Marnie Furry from um I know her from Bethesda Workshops in Nashville. And we met uh I guess it's been about eight or nine months now, back in October at the SASH conference, we were able to sit on a question and answer panel together. And I so enjoyed meeting her and talking with her and learning about her. And so I'm excited that she is here with us. Thanks, Amy. I'm really glad to be here. Yeah, I'm going to just let... For forever, so I'm really glad yeah. it's, it's happening. <laughs> Me too. I'm going to let you kind of introduce yourselves, uh, yourself to us. Uh, give us a kind of a background of, of who you are. Okay. Uh, I'm Marnie. And I think the most important thing about me is I am a grateful recovering sex, love, and relationship addict. I've been on this journey of healing since 1991 and consider a sobriety wow. date in 1992, though still definitely an imperfect, an imperfect <laughs> journey. Um, my own recovery informed eventually my clinical work. I was a mom and a journalist when I entered recovery after years and years of sexual acting out, primarily with um, promiscuity before my marriages and many affairs in my marriages. Um, and I'm going to tell you more about my story later. But ultimately, I got a master's in counseling and began to work with others, primarily women at first, who were struggling with sex addiction, and ultimately founded what became Bethesda Workshops in 1997, which was the first offering, as far as we've been able to determine, of a clinical intensive workshop that was gender-specific for women. And so that happened in 1997, and Bethesda Workshops grew from that point. And today we treat in Nashville, Tennessee, male sex addicts, female sex addicts, partners of addicts, couples. Our program is such that, that each individual person must have come to his or her own workshop first before they come to couples. And we're just launching a intensive workshop program for teens, for teens, gender-specific males and females, and their parents. Their parents have to come with them and take part in the process. So I'm a certified sex addiction therapist, the CSAT, and um, very, very blessed and grateful to do this work. Wow. Thank you so much. I didn't realize, um, I knew Bethesda had been around for a while, but 21 years. Yes, yes. We celebrated our 20th anniversary last year by getting our own building. We have been homeless as a ministry for 21 years, so or 20 years at that yeah. point. So that's been super, super, super exciting. Congratulations on that. And I am so excited. I can't even tell you about your teen program. I've read all your literature, and I just, having taught high school myself for a number of years, that teen female population is so um, dear to my heart because they struggle so much and there's yeah. so much pressure. And I'm very excited about the program that you're offering. Thank you. We are really excited about it too. And to be honest, I, if I'm doing a feelings check, feel some sadness and fear about that program. We have had two dates now that were on our calendar that have come and gone because we had zero families register. Mm. And <clears throat> I know the need is out there. I'm like you. Um, I I know the need is huge. And the people who hear about it are super excited. And 
clinicians or counselors or pastors will say, oh, yes, we need this so much. And we've got families and they we have built it and they don't come. So mm-hmm. I'm powerless over that and <laughs> choosing to think that this may be like those brave, persistent souls who are trying to start a new meeting yeah. and they sit by themselves in a room for this week and next week and the week after and the week after and no one comes and yet they faithfully keep showing up and maybe they read the literature themselves for a meeting and <laughs> have a, a meeting <laughs> with themselves and eventually someone will come and then maybe another person and eventually a a new meeting is established if that's what's helpful in that area. And so I'm really trying to ask the God of my understanding for the grace to look at this like that, that this is such new territory. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, as you know, as you I'm sure will know from your own experience and experience as a teacher, most of the time parents want to send their kid as the identified patient, get her fixed or get him fixed. And we know that's not ultimately what's most helpful, that this is a family issue and everyone in the family needs help. And when we can look at it collaboratively as a family treatment opportunity and look at the dynamics and the expectations and the untold secrets and all kinds of things, the intergenerational woundedness, um, all of those things is, is a family gives that teen the best opportunity for long-term healing and actually gives her or his parents an amazing opportunity to do some of their own work that could be beneficial. So I'm convinced that's the the right modality. And I'm also convinced that we ain't crazy. We ain't treating teen females and putting them in a hotel room by themselves at 15, 16, you know, overnight. So no, no yeah, so, you know, I, all kinds of reasons. Yeah. But I, I really think and we're starting to hear feedback that that's, that's kind of a sticking point. Parents are like, I, oh, I, I don't want to go do all that four days. My life's busy. I, I just want you to work with her or work with her. Yeah. So when you said that, that was the first thought that came to my mind because (laughs) on a very small basis, right? Like I dealt with that in the high school level, you know, students struggling with their grades. Well, that's their problem. That has nothing to do with parental issues or, you know, anything like that. And so that's a very small example, but I think that definitely applies here. Um, that, we sometimes just want people to be fixed and we look at them as the problem and not ourselves or the system as, as probably contributing to that problem. That's exactly right. And, and we want as well to give parents some really helpful tools and for the whole family to get to look at the incredible cultural issues today that are Mm -hmm. exacerbating this problem of confusion around anything about healthy sexuality and all the proliferation of pornography and just all of that, that is, so systemic and feels pretty intractable, actually, but so influential for teens and parents alike. So, you know, it, it really is a a pretty comprehensive and wide-ranging, very intense four days, and it's largely experiential and engaging for everyone and that will set up an opportunity for really healthy conversations, but not in an adversarial format necessarily. So I really believe in it, can you tell? <laughs> and and yeah. I, I'm just trying to trust the process that we'll keep putting those dates on the calendar. And if it's something we're supposed to do, then ultimately it will take off. So. Yeah. Well, I, I agree with that. And I will keep my listeners informed of the progress of that because that population is something that I it's very dear to my heart. And so I will continue. I know as a teen myself, had there been some intervention in some of my behaviors, um, my life probably would not have taken the trajectory that it did. And, and that had to have been like a systemic intervention, not just with me, but with my parents and with my family. And, and so I'm, I, yeah, I, I believe in it too. (laughs) I will keep doing whatever I can to support that. Yeah. Um, Yeah. When you were talking about kind of that first, you know, person sitting alone in a meeting by themselves week after week, um, it kind of had me thinking about your experience coming into sex and love addiction um, as a female back in the 90s. Um, And tell me, tell me what that looked like for you. How, How did that happen? Um, it happened the way it happens for many of us out of absolute, complete brokenness. Uh, I had been acting out 
since I was 16 or 17 years old and had no understanding of my own um, long-term sexual abuse because it was perpetrated by a man who was a father figure for me and a dear, dear family friend. So I never, that just went in my category of sexual abuse, you know. So I didn't understand at the time how much my history had, in that regard, had impacted my life. Um, As well as my mother died when I was very tiny. My father struggled with pornography and other forms of acting out and was a preacher and just so, you know, lots of complicated dynamics that are certainly not unique to me, but they sure felt that way. Um, I'm sure they did. And so finally, my acting out caught up with me. I had lost a first marriage. I married very young at age 20 in college, and we divorced after about four years. And I had acted out for the last three years of that relationship, though always lied about that. Um, and then I awfully quickly married my current husband. So we've been married 37 years, so a long, long time. Wow. But, um And it was the earliest and and calmest period of my life until I entered recovery. We do life together really well. He's a dear, dear man. We had two children relatively quickly. And and my sex addiction at that point was dormant with no real reason other than I thought I had married the right one. And it was just a calm period for me. And then a lot of stresses came into our lives. And I began acting out again and took off on a next, I don't know, I have to do the math, probably five or six year journey, uh, at least into pretty profound acting out again, largely with multiple affairs and my behavior caught up with me. Mm -hmm. So out of the consequences of cervical cancer caused by HPV of debilitating depression and anxiety and panic attacks, I had a suicidal episode, just had been thinking about that more. And one morning was, was really planning to take a full bottle of pills and, and I know God did for me what I couldn't do for myself because I finally picked up a phone and called a dear friend and asked for help. And she came and began my journey there. Uh, and she recommended a counselor and a Christian counselor. And at that point, my thought was, uh, hell no. But she assured me that this woman <laughs> could help me. And indeed, she could. And within a week or so, I was at my first session with this woman who back in 1991 was maybe one of, it couldn't have been more than two or three dozen people in the country who had trained with this young up-and-coming psychologist named Dr. Patrick Carnes. So it just wow. gives me chills every time I talk about that, that I, the God of my understanding had prepared that way for me. And so I was blessed to be with someone who immediately had a construct for how to help me. And I actually find, find those labels and those kinds of things very helpful. I don't find them pejorative. Um, we worked a lot on my trauma for the first year, and I continued to act out in an affair, very intense affair that I was not willing to let go of that felt like life for me. But then again, another series of circumstances got my attention, and I became willing to be willing and that's what I consider my first sobriety date, August the 8th, 1992. Um, and so, but through that beginning period, you know, I read everything I could get my hands on from Carnes, um, read material from a leader in the Christian community named Dr. Mark Laser, who's also a recovering addict and a psychologist. Uh, and I kept thinking, you guys are writing great books, but the pronouns are wrong. Um, they didn't. It didn't apply to me. And I really thought that I was the only one until woman after woman after woman started coming to me because she saw me in a meeting or mostly because my counselor, you know, with all the right releases, but started connecting me with other people whose stories were similar. Um, and and that's what got me into yeah. wanting to do this more professionally and going back to school and all that kind of stuff. But still, there was there were not resources for women back then. Um, so what was that like? It was both lonely and yet recovery itself and everything I was learning about trauma, about the connection between trauma and addiction, about real tools for addiction. Cause I tried desperately to stop. And I mean, like all of us, of course I could stay stopped. I just, I mean, I could stop. I just couldn't stay stopped. And, (laughs) and, and I had no tools about that. So for me to understand my own cycle of addiction and my own rituals and my own triggers and do all the trauma work and, eventually get into 12-step recovery, which 
was another challenge we can talk about. Uh, obviously, for women, there's still not many of us in the rooms. Um, but all of that was very encouraging and freeing. Mm-hmm. And it felt very clear to me pretty much from the beginning, almost from that first session with that counselor, because she just laid out, Here, here's how I, I see your story, and I can be helpful. Uh, I thought, wow, if if I'm able to get any kind of healing from this, I believe that that God is calling me to be a missionary for other women. And so I've gotten to do that. And it's been amazing and extraordinarily humbling, um, especially as I've had different challenges along my own road to recovery, but never, ever giving up on recovery. Um, and it's been wonderful, <laughs> wonderful. So 20 years later, I entered recovery. Um, so you started oh. in 91, uh, 2011 was my year. And uh, very similar, had a therapist um, who knew about Patrick Karn's work and had those that information for me to be able to access immediately. Um, I, I am so blown away by your story because even now I hear so many women who go in to see a therapist and struggle um, in that process of finding someone who will support them in their story and understand the yeah. comprehensiveness of the trauma and the addiction and the cycle and how all of that works. Uh, how, how do you feel like we've made a lot of progress in that area for women? I think we have. Now, I'm aware that I probably have a skewed perspective because I work I work in this area and have been blessed to get to join with some others and be pioneers and the treatment of women. So I know through first organizations like SASH, the Society for the Advancement of Sexual Health, where we met at a conference last fall, um, to now Mm -hmm. the ITAP, International Institute for Trauma and Addiction Professionals, and and the training that that they have through the CSAT, Certified Sex Addiction Therapist Program, there is good information out there now. Um, A group of colleagues, female colleagues, and I wrote a book called Making Advances, a clinical treatment manual for treating female sex, love, and relationship addicts. And it came out in 2012. And it's still the only text out there about how you actually work with women. So that's a little disappointing. And um, it's good material, and it's all still still accurate. I've seen what really gives me encouragement um, are things like your podcast, Amy, and, and you and your efforts to help um, others, Stacy Sprout and and others. And now, you know, we were together at the ITAP Symposium in May, and here are two women who are coming out, and I call y'all the younger generation. I'm, I'm an old grandmother. I'm, you know, 62. <laughs> um, but these young women who are writing books and making movies about women's experience. So I think finally the word is getting out and we've made enormous progress. Unfortunately, it doesn't always translate to that individual female who's sitting at two o'clock in the morning, just undone. Right. Yeah. Talk. Um, I was very encouraged also at the ITAP conference um, with Erica Garza, who's been on our podcast and wrote yes. her new book. And then uh, Charlene de Guzman, who has her new movie um, out. It's, just kind of making the movie circuit right now. It hasn't hasn't picked up, or it has picked up a uh, national showing, but um, isn't scheduled yet. So I'm excited for that. Um, but I also liked what you said about um, in the rooms. There still aren't enough women in right. in the rooms, right? So that it can translate down to the woman sitting alone at 2 a.m. You know, just saying that she's done. Um, When you first started attending 12-step fellowship meetings, what was that like for you? Um, It was wonderful and it was horrible. Um, Again, there was a particular wake-up moment in in my life um, where I was was still acting out, confining it to this man that was, you know, I thought my complete end-all, be-all knight in shining armor um, and doing a lot of hard work in therapy and came to a point where I would have acted out with someone else and actually tried pretty hard to do that. It was about six months into my counseling time, and I just ran into him and hadn't, had acted out with him in my <clears throat> actually young 
age. So at that point, it had been years and years and years. Again, I'd have to do the math, but probably it had been 15 years or so. And he wouldn't, which was odd and kind of (laughs) off-putting. And finally, he literally patted me on the head and he said, go home, get your shit together. What, what are you doing? What, what you're trying to do here, this will kill you. And I thought that is odd. But on August the 8th, 1992, I saw that man's obituary in the newspaper, died of AIDS. And I thought, ah, that's what was happening last December there, but for the grace of God go I. And I went to my first S fellowship and I walked in the room and it was me and 20 men. And Mm -hmm. I didn't say a word and I cried through the whole thing. And before it was over, I was certain that I was home. These men were telling my story. And it it was so amazing and wonderful. And I also knew that I couldn't stay there. It wasn't that the meeting wasn't safe. And they were very appropriate and welcomed me appropriately with great boundaries and encouraged me to come back. It was I wasn't safe, just meaning mm. I was still so involved in all of my own intrigue and objectification and all of that that I thought... I can't be present here. I'll be too concerned. What do they think of me or how do I look or all that kind of stuff to, to really benefit from here. And I was afraid actually that I would inappropriately approach somebody at a meeting. So with my therapist's help, did some brainstorming and I began attending a women's only AA meeting, which was hmm. wonderful. And the woman I chose uh, asked her to be my sponsor and she agreed, had probably 20 years sober from drugs and alcohol. And when a few months later, I did a first step around sex, love, and relationships with her, she just wept with me. And she said, oh, Marnie, you're telling my story. I think I'm still an active sex addict. I've never, ever thought about that. I've never looked at it. But that's today, it's not drugs or alcohol, it's men. Wow. And so we got to work the steps together. Uh, Ultimately, I went back to 12-step meetings, began with a fellowship that had more generally speaking, women in it. And so there were a couple of us and some other women joined. Um, And then eventually went to another fellowship where, as fellowship, where I was still largely the only woman. But by that point, had enough sobriety that that after just a handful of meetings, um, it felt very comfortable. And and it was really, really healing. I spent many years in that S-fellowship. And to be in the company of men who are working on their stuff and to not objectify them and to not feel objectified by them and to just begin only within the meetings. I, I didn't connect with the, any of the men outside of meetings. That just wasn't safe for me. But, but to hear their stories and their shares in the meetings, to come to see them as just average, messed up, hurting, wounded people like me was very, very helpful for my own my own recovery journey. Um, today in Nashville, at least, we are super blessed. There are multiple women's only meetings of um, the primary S fellowship that's active here. I'm not sure if the other primary S fellowship here has women's only meetings, but but today in some areas, at least, you can go to a women's only meeting. I think for a lot of us in real early recovery, if we're a heterosexual woman, at least, that's that's kind of helpful to to be in the rooms with with just women. And again, I mean, I just said it, I think there is such enormous benefit of mixed gender meetings. And I always encourage women who come here to our Healing for Women program for female sex and love addicts, or women that I'm talking with, or when I speak or write or whatever, do phone meetings. That's that's still so helpful. There are probably a dozen every day if you go between the different fellowships, at least. <laughs> at least. And, yeah. and on the phone, who cares? Yeah. I mean, that's just a much safer environment and is a good supplement to doing face-to-face meetings. So I, I don't know. To me today, there's really not much reason why a woman can't participate in meetings, but it's still harder to find face-to-face women in the rooms, especially depending on where you are. Yeah, for sure. I I loved and really related to the idea that the men might have been safe. They might have been working on their own thing, but at the beginning I I wasn't safe. It wasn't it was difficult for me to be in those meetings because I because of the intrigue, because of I was fantasizing or n- not anything to do with their behavior, but just my own personal right. mindset and behavior. Right. I think a lot of women miss that. I think a lot of men miss that too. Right. Uh 
when a woman walks in for the first time. Yeah. 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 I, I, I think so. Um, and obviously there've got to be good boundaries and all that kind of stuff. And I think, you know, by now, most of the times the people who enter an S 12 step meeting are already aware of that. Um, Mm -hmm. I actually think this may be controversial or bold, but I'll say it. I actually think the S fellowships are much safer in terms of gender specific meetings than your average alcohol or drug addict meetings. (laughs) Because generally, we're at least aware that there's more to this that can be problematic. But anyway. Um, I do think that S fellowships talk more about acting out in a broader spectrum, like a variety of behaviors, mm-hmm. not just a specific substance. Whereas, you know, alcohol and drug 12 um, step fellowships deal with a specific substance, not necessarily behavior as a whole. And so that would kind of. Um, support what you're saying. And I, in my experience, at least, or from what I have heard from from others, it seems awfully rare, actually, for the 13th stepping to happen, for people to to become romantically or sexually or even inappropriately emotionally involved based on the meetings that I'm aware of, at least. And that's mm-hmm. often not the case with in some other fellowships. But anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I would be curious, first of all, thank you for sharing so much of your story with us and your experiences. Um, I, I know that there are so many, I talked to so many women who still struggle to find a meeting. Um, and, and I would just reiterate what you said about phone meetings being so supportive and there are at least a dozen a day, um, between the different S fellowships that are women only meetings that you can attend or you can attend mixed meetings on the phone because that physical presence isn't necessarily a right. temptation. Um, I would like to hear your thoughts on a question that I get asked all of the time, which is what are some of the differences or some of the different challenges uh, that women experience in recovery um, and in sex addiction versus men? Um, I get asked that question quite a bit and I have my own thoughts, but I would love your thoughts on what are the differences? What do you see as some of the differences that women um, experience in addiction for sex and love addiction or between men and women? And then also what are some of the different challenges that women experience getting into recovery as opposed to Yeah, those are questions I get asked a lot too. And I think they're important. I'm going to answer the second one first, because we've really kind of already talked about the challenges of women in recovery. There aren't enough resources with the pronouns that are gender for women. Correct. Um, Though again, that's, that's changing some. There aren't enough other women who are in recovery and so that increases women's sense, I'm all alone in this, or I'm especially weird or impaired or messed up or something. And right. I think this is changing somewhat, but they're still, particularly if they are not trained counselors, like through CSAD or through the SASH program for problematic sexual behavior, it just doesn't occur to them that what they see in front of them and, and their female client might be a sex or love addiction. It's just not on the radar, and women aren't asked mm-hmm. about it. So, um, I mean, yeah. you don't typically say to a woman in an intake the way surely counselors are saying, at least to men, so tell me about your pornography use. The same way you would say, tell me about your alcohol use, or tell me about your use of pot or other recreational drugs or misuse. Just as a normal right, screening question. Right, just as a normal screening question. I don't think hardly anyone right. is asking women that question which is a grave oversight. Um, so those kinds of challenges, I think, are, are very real. In terms of how does women's acting out differ from men's, and this is a core theme of what the other authors and I wrote in Making Advances, the treatment manual. Today, I would say, in terms of women's acting out, there aren't differences. I, I really see a great flattening of the distinctions between men's acting out and women's acting out. When I was entering recovery, if it was considered that a woman was a, quote, sex addict, uh, it was almost always the relationship kind. And I even wrote in some of my early books Mm -hmm. that 
even when a woman was beginning to use the internet for sexual purposes, she was more drawn to sexual chat rooms or things that are giving some kind of pseudo relationship sense. I do see that that's, that's true, particularly uh-huh. for the older generation. And what I also see, though, that for the younger generation, let me arbitrarily say 30-year-olds and younger, the the generation that are the the gen tech generation, they've, they've grown up with the mobile devices and don't uh-huh. know a world without internet or constant access to that, that they're acting out is looking much more like what stereotypically we've said of men. It's, it's pornography. Um, it's plain old visual pornography, mm-hmm. as well as escalation into all kinds of other stuff. Um, it's anonymous sex. Women don't typically call it anonymous sex. If you ask a woman, do you have anonymous sex? Few of them will say yes, even if they're like in a counseling setting. But if you ask a woman, so do you ever like go to a bar and you hook up with someone? And are sexual with them? Oh, yeah. Well, that's anonymous sex. Just the terms is different now. Um, So what I see more and what I think we need to be aware of as clinicians who deal with this, as people of the clergy who are looking to be helpful, and as women themselves, that generally speaking, I don't see the huge divide anymore. Um, not not the way it was from my generation to this generation. I'm wondering first, before we go on, what do you see about that? Because you're talking to lots and lots and lots of women in a different way than I am. Um, I, I would agree with your assessment wholeheartedly. Okay. I belong to that. Like I'm like that middle generation, right? Between right. you and right. the younger one. Um, and definitely my acting out looked... Um, like some sometimes when I started, it was more relationship driven right. and oriented. Um, I was in those sexual chat rooms. I was developing longer term uh, acting out partners. Um, it was kind of that pseudo relationship thing. As it escalated, though, and as technology became more accessible, it was much more on that um, anonymous sex type thing. A lot of pornography. Um, a lot of sexting a lot of you know just that sure yeah a lot of those younger those behaviors that are kind of more commonplace for that younger generation so I was kind of in that mix period and I definitely see what you're saying I also you know very some of the younger women that I work with I work with a number of women that are like in their early 20s even right and are struggling, you know, even things like Pinterest. One of the women that I know, you know, most of her pornography access comes through Pinterest. Um, that's where she accesses pornography and that's where she sees it and looks at it and, and you know, consumes it. I also have a, a stronger uh, group of women who aren't acting out with men, right. um, which I have been really surprised at. Uh, this kind of younger generation are scared a lot of relationships. Um, and so a lot of their acting out is just pornography. Um, they might be sexting with men, but there's no physical contact. Um, and then a lot of masturbation, uh, which has been surprising to me as that kind of awareness has grown. And, and I've seen that population grow that these women aren't having relationships with men at all. It's just mostly online. Right. I absolutely see that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think, think one of the other barriers, and I would be curious if, if you see this um, for women, particularly getting into the help that they need in recovery, is just the financial barrier. Um, uh, sure. I, th- I think a lot of women, when they get into recovery, usually requires them to maybe sometimes leave a primary relationship or right. uh, right. they've been, you know, exited from a primary relationship, <laughs> right. kicked out. And in uh, a lot of that... Uh, we still struggle with a lot of women being dependent on men for financial um, backing. And so just that finance, you know, whereas a woman would sacrifice, you know, groceries, budget to get a man into a a male into rehab. um, We don't, I don't see that reciprocated from men um, to, to sacrifice, to get a wife or a sister or a spouse or um, you know, someone into recovery. I absolutely agree with that. And and we talk about that too and making advances. So yeah. I, I think we're we're changing a little bit now into how is treating women different. I think mm-hmm. first you're exactly right, uh, or how is women's recovery 
process different. There are some real practical considerations. Childcare is another one. That, right. Yeah. You know, massive. Typically, even a real involved dad, you'll hear him say, "Well, I'm babysitting my kids tonight," which just fries me. These are your kids; <laughs> you don't babysit them. But anyway, right. you know what I mean. Uh-huh. Um, and stereotypically, I think it's still true. Women are often they're going to pick up the slack. They're going to keep the kids while a guy goes off to his meetings or to treatment or to counseling or whatever. And it's not it's not nearly that simple. We see that especially around uh, either coming to an intensive like with us or some of the other good ones that are out there or even just going to counseling or going to groups, to group therapy as well as 12-step groups. It's like, well, I was planning to go, but you know, now Billy's got strep throat and I don't have anybody to take care of him or just some real practical considerations around that. I, I think as well, unfortunately, again, most of the both self-help, but also this clinical literature is still geared toward a man's experience of recovery, meaning within the CSAC community, here are the 30 tasks. They're great. And I and the others who wrote Making Advances believe in them. And yet that's a real male-oriented way of looking at things, which makes sense because Pat Carnes himself developed them and he is indeed a male. But um, <laughs> but women generally need a different approach to treatment, to, to hand them the recovery manuals and here, start going through this workbook and doing that task. They'll be like, oh, no, 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 no. Either, either for <laughs> life reasons, like my kids, I've got to work whatever. It's hard to prioritize that type of investment in their own healing. But I think more just women's, what hasn't changed is women's brains are wired differently. And I'm not the expert on the neurophysiology and biology and the kinds of things about that. Some of my my colleagues are. Uh, Alexandra Katahakis has done a marvelous book about sex addiction as affect regulation disorder. And Kelly McDaniel mm-hmm. and her, her work on mother hunger and women's brains and <clears throat> even Stacy Sproud and her stuff, you know, people who know more about it, or at least they can explain it better than I do. And I'm still convinced, even in my pseudo ignorance compared to some of my colleagues, that women's brains are more relationally wired. They're more verbal oriented. They're more emotionally in tuned, a little bit bigger right brain. And some things that women heal more in relationship. Now, I believe with all my heart that men also need relationship to heal. But for women, that that helping relationship is so, so much more critical. And they don't want to be told and won't respond well to, here's, here's what you need to do. Do this, do that, blah, blah, blah. Women often need to develop that relationship and that trust with their therapist or their recovery coach or whoever is part of their uh, community of support. And that's... Mm-hmm. much more critical, much, much more critical. Yeah. I was really um, appreciative. <laughs> there is at least in Pat Carnes's books, he does use both pronouns, which, um, you know, his more recent right. editions, right? right. Which I was appreciative of. Right. Um, there's not, there's still a lot of literature yes. that doesn't right. use <laughs> both at all. Yeah. Um, and that, the 30 tasks model, that was the model that I was presented with and given as I went through. And I think that without a primary relationship with a therapist um, that was very healing, I agree. I, I I don't know that that would have worked for me um, just to, you know, kind of work right. through it. You know, we, it was very much a relational um, experience for me. And yeah. Exactly. And without that, I don't, I don't know that that would have worked as well as it did. Yeah. 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 And so I think that's the timing, the, the method of introducing the different kinds of tasks. Um, Women are typically much more resistant to meetings for all the reasons we've Uh talked about. Uh, So there, there are differences in, in treating women um, that I think are pretty profound and, and really important. I think culturally, um, the culture desperately affects men, of course, and all the proliferation of pornography and all that stuff. Maybe because I am one, I think the culture 
even more affects women because they get it kind of the double whammy. I told they get the cultural messages of what does it mean to be quote female and you're supposed to look a certain way and behave a certain way and all that kind of stuff. So they're getting it from there, but then they're also getting men's expectations of them. So there's lots of literature and, and certainly anecdotal stories about women who are doing all kinds of things sexually at risk to themselves and against either their value system or just their preferences to please a man because the guys have learned in pornography, well, every woman wants and loves anal sex, for example. Right. And that is absolutely not true. Um, so so they're getting it from from both both sides culturally, I think. And that's that's a real difficulty for women as they're trying to heal. I 100% agree with that. I think the double standard is just profound what yes. women are required to perform at, at a, that double standard level. And also I would add to that just the – I also think that unfortunately we perpetuate – women get this cultural bias from men but also from women themselves. We Absolutely. perpetuate that within our own gender of – what is acceptable, what's not, what you need to do, pleasing a man, you know, that makes you a woman. I mean, just so many different things that we perpetuate onto each other as well, which is makes it doubly difficult. I absolutely agree with that, Amy. And I'll, again, be so bold and probably controversial to take it a step further that's very politically incorrect. But I think women objectify ourselves and each other in terms of, it was so interesting to me at the height of some of the beginning of the Me Too movement, which I absolutely affirm and am part of. I mean, Me Too, this happened to me. All yeah. those kinds of things. And we have women in a marvelous venue, like one of the Big Deal Awards programs at the moment, I forget which one it was, who are talking about that, which was wonderful. And yet the way they were presenting themselves in terms of their appearance and their clothing, or I would say lack thereof, is was astonishing and how provocative it was and how objectifying it was. And I don't think culturally women get that yet. And it's not to say women ever deserve to be raped or objectified or abused or any of those kinds of things. And we're doing it to ourselves and we're doing it to each other. And that doesn't help anything. Mm -hmm. Don't I sound like a grandma? I, think <laughs> no, I wouldn't say that's a grandma. <laughs> Um, I, I think that's so true in so many different ways that we objectify ourselves and we objectify each other um, in the way that we talk about. I mean, you know, most of the criticism that comes from the way that women dressed are is from other women yeah. um, and, yeah. you know, vice both directions. Right? right. Like you don't have enough clothes on or you're wearing too many <laughs> right. clothes or, you know, right. like both ways. We we are the ones that perpetrate that upon ourselves and. That's one of the things I know I've really tried to rein in for myself yes. and, and just you. really, you know, work on personally and, and really help people to see that we're not objects right. and that we can't treat, we, if we expect men to, you know, treat us not that way, we also need to not treat exactly. ourselves that way. Yeah, exactly. I really, yeah. I really believe yeah, that. Yeah, I think another difficulty with women who are seeking to recover from sex or love or relationship addiction and you, you mentioned it, are the men in our lives. Um, there's mm. a lot of great material out there now for partners of sex addicts. And by and large, they're talking about female partners of male sex addicts, though I think the partner literature has done a, probably a better job, I mean, it's 20 years later, of being a little more inclusive in their language and understanding that male partners also exist, you know, people like my husband. Um, mm -hmm. But I think the men who are partners of us women who struggle with sex addiction, that's an enormously difficult road. Um, culturally still, there's no place for them. I mean, I, I think it's still a frontier of treatment resources. I know my husband, you know, where was he supposed to go to find other men who were married or in significant relationship with a sex addict? There weren't any in any of the rooms he went to. Uh, and that's still largely the case, and they're not thought about. And I think the culture really does something about these men in terms of not understanding them, not accepting them, certainly not holding them up as the norm. 
uh, as someone who has been betrayed rather than the betrayer, the treatment resources aren't aren't there as much. Uh, we do accept male partners here at Bethesda Workshops into our Healing for Partners program. And, you know, out of six workshops, each one has anywhere from 12 to 18 people at each one. And a total for a year, we'll have five, six male partners who come. It's just hard for them to access wow. yeah. help. And, and then I think, um, generally speaking, I find that male partners are, I, I don't mean this unkindly, so let me say it and unpack it, a little bit less nuanced, meaning they're still obviously very mm-hmm. complicated individuals with their own trauma and all that kind of thing, the reality, the way that, that female partners are. But first, the betrayal for anyone is so enormously devastating. I think it takes a different toll on men. And I find that they typically mm-hmm. present, at least the ones who show up here. So we're, you know, we're getting a small slice of the recovering population because not everybody's going to spend the money in four days to come to an intensive. But And... Still, the ones who show up here very broadly, and these are huge generalizations, but they're falling in one of two camps. Either they are extraordinarily angry. I mean, at a rageful, almost domestic violence level of anger. The kind who are waking up their female addict at two o'clock in the morning and just screaming and berating her for her betrayals and then having rough sex with her. So, So that level on that side. Yeah. And women, of course, get rageful. I mean, betrayal will do that to you. That's kind of an, an understandable response, but typically not quite like like that. Um, or the men are, I'd call it the other end of the spectrum, very, very shut down. Just it's very hard for them to hold any boundaries. If they just, if she would just get better, mm-hmm. then everything would be better. And they just want to love her more, you know, in a in a positive kind of way. If I'm just if I'm just patient, if I'm just more kind to her, if I'm just more understanding to her, somehow we're going to get through this. Uh, and and they find it very hard to hold any appropriate boundaries. So that's what I mean by a little less nuanced. Mm-hmm. Does that make any sense? Yeah, no, I think it makes a lot of sense. And I we've experienced that in this area. Um, we started a women's only as fellowship meeting. I guess it's been almost three years now. And it's grown and we, we're super excited oh, about awesome. how big it is. We've got about 20-ish women that attend on a weekly basis. And yeah. we started looking for resources for their partners, right? Like how do we right. put – and this group of partners, they're all male. So how, how, how do we get them the help that they need and experienced exactly what you're saying? Um, right. And it's just yep. the reverse, right? All the literature is written for – wives for females. So all the literature, all the pronouns are wrong. Um, It's very relational oriented, right? Because it's written for women. Um, And so it's not this, it's just just everything in reverse. And I see that as a massive hole we have right now in the recovery community of how do we work with these male partners that are experiencing betrayal? I absolutely agree. I think that and teens are the, the huge gaps right now and the recovery experience. There just aren't good resources for either one. Yeah. And the teens part makes me so sad because it's preventative, right? Like, I mean, it's, it's like, we want to prevent these lives that we have all experienced or seen and, you know, let's try to intervene a little bit earlier. I know it. Yes. Amen. Yeah. (laughs) Amen. Okay. Marnie, thanks for being here with us today. You have just shared so much of your personal journey and so much of your professional work. And I'm just so excited to be able to share this with our audience. Oh, you're welcome. Again, I've been looking forward to this. I've really enjoyed this time. I'd love to come back if that's ever helpful. And I so support you, Amy, and all the different facets of the work that you're doing. It's wonderful. We need more women who are both telling their own stories and who are extending a helping 
hand and their knowledge and wisdom and experience, strength and hope to other women. So I, I, my hat's off to you, dear. Oh, well, thank you so much. Um, tell us a little bit, um, before we close here, tell us a little bit about the Bethesda workshops for women. Um, I know like I, I coach, I do recovery coaching and I coach actually two women, two of your, um, alums, alum. Yeah. Who have been there and, uh, and just have amazing things to say about it. Um, so I just wanted to share that with, uh, with our listeners today. Just if you could tell us a little bit about the workshop and then how they can find in more information. Oh, great. Yeah. Thanks for that opportunity. And, and the experience of the two women who have been here, who are sharing that with you is worth a whole lot more than anything I'm going to say about it, because <laughs> that's exactly the kind of, um, endorsement and information we want. Uh, our program for female sex, love, and relationship addicts is called Healing for Women. And by the way, we don't really distinguish in in that workshop or actually in treatment. Is it a, quote, sex addict, or I'm just a pornography addict, or I'm a relationship addict? There are some nuances as one gets further into her recovery journey about those distinctions and what she needs, and especially a grieving process around love and mm-hmm. relationship addiction and letting go of... Uh, partners who aren't helpful, but generally speaking, all the dynamics are the same. So mm-hmm. any woman, whether she's your your pornography masturbation or anonymous sex or or she's your more traditional, emotionally connected affair type person is welcome and will actually find lots of help because this is a very frontline beginning part of the process. We're in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, and our program is just four days. It begins Wednesday at 1 p.m. and ends Saturday evening at 6. But we do extremely long days. Uh, Thursday and Friday are 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Um, and Saturday 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. So we're packing in there. Uh, my colleagues who work in inpatient treatment say that people who come to Bethesda workshops, to any of our workshops, are getting the equivalent in terms of content of 30-day inpatient program. So just Oh, Imagine wow. that. Yeah. We are feeding people with a fire hose. <laughs> but it's also really comprehensive. Sure, we're looking at the behavior, whatever that might might be, in a safe place to talk about that and the shame and the, the challenges with even willingness around recovery. Um, and we're looking very specifically at what are your triggers and what are your rituals and what are the boundaries you need to be safe and those kinds of standard stuff. But we're also here on the, on the front end looking at trauma. Because we are so convinced mm-hmm. that that trauma and attachment wounds, we talked about some of those, at least in my story today, uh, are, they're the engines. That's what is driving this bus. And you're certainly not going to, you know, help or heal somebody's sexual abuse or the objectification they experience from their culture in four days. But to just have a place to talk about it and begin that process, we find is very, very, very helpful. It's all a group process. We put no more than six women in a small group. And the whole community of the Healing for Women workshop is generally 10 women or less. We don't take more than 12 at a time. Um, so it's wow. it's very small, which is great because of such a benefit is you really, really bond with the other women who are here, which is just such an antidote to both the shame and a catapult for the healing process. Um, it's a no-technology environment, meaning um, hmm. we ask all participants to turn in her cell phone, her mobile device, her laptop, if she's brought that to work on while she's traveling or something. And it's a no connection with the outside world. Um, So not calling home, not even calling children, which is hard for women. And we help them brainstorm of ways to leave notes or different things to stay connected with children while they're gone. But it needs to be a total timeout from, from the outside world to really focus on herself and her healing. Uh, the fee workshop fee provides all lodging and meals. So, and we make all of those arrangements for someone. So if she can get to Nashville, we take care of everything else for her, including airport transfers and transfer back and forth. Uh, we're not residential um, because we don't have a place for people to sleep, but two miles down the road is the conference hotel that we all use. And we provide um, participants shuttle back and forth. So it's really convenient when you get here. Great. Uh, and it's it's a very loving, affirming, grace-based environment. We are a Christian-based program. Uh, that's my history and and still my, my love and passion, but a very 
many women report, I have found a different kind of God here. And we are so grateful for that, a God of grace and Mm -hmm. love and not the judgment and not the condemnation that many have experienced within their religious communities. It's very ecumenical, meaning uh, any, anyone is welcome. I mean, whether, whether she identifies as a Christian or not. Um, But certainly we make no distinction between Catholic or Protestant or any of all the bajillions of flavors under both Protestant, especially. Um, (laughs) And we have had individuals of Muslim faith or Hindu or Orthodox Jew or Sikh or, you know, a variety or, or no religious uh, affiliation at all come and, and say, I don't do the Christian stuff, but I hear you do great treatment. Can I come? And we say, absolutely. And those individuals, we are both very respectful of whatever their belief system is and honoring of that and absolutely not encouraging, well, you just need to accept Jesus or pray more or read your Bible or any of those kinds of things. Though we do a little (laughs) bit of, at least we use Bible stories to inform clinical principles, uh, different ways through the workshop. If someone wants to pray, we're glad to pray with her. But um, but my point is that individuals for whom those are not helpful, we've had, you know, a Muslim person say, I never heard that, quote, Bible story, and I don't do your Bible, but boy, I sure get the, the, the recovery principle that you're talking about here. So thank you. Mm. Um, so we love that about wanting to yeah. be uh, within yeah. a Christian context, but presenting a very the kind of God that I was blessed to find in my 12 step rooms and in, in recovery. Um, so that's, mm-hmm. I think that's probably our website is the best source of information. It's Bethesda, which is spelled like Bethesda, Maryland. We always tell people Bethesda is the name of our program, not the place, but, but it's E-T-H-E-S-D-A workshops, <laughs> plural yeah. with an S. So one word, Bethesda workshops.org.org. And have lots and lots of complete information, including cost and dates. And uh, all of our leaders are at least master's level. We have several doctoral level folks. And about 97 or 8% of our clinical staff are CSATs. So highly, highly trained in, in working with this. And also highly trained in lots of experience in doing group. Because we're so small, a, a woman gets lots and lots of individual yeah. attention and Group is the hands-down treatment of choice for addiction. Um, so within that group setting, she learns about as much from her sisters that are in the process with her as she does by doing her own, quote, work, because yeah. that's just how it works. So, Yeah. I'll, Thanks for letting me tell so much about Bethesda Workshops. Well, absolutely. <laughs> Thanks for the pioneering work that you've done for women in addiction. Um, I I look at some of like your story and Stacy's story, you know, those kind of real pioneers in treating women's sex addiction and, and just, I'm so grateful for your courage and your work and your willingness to share all of that and pave the way for those of us that came later that needed help. Um, I know, like I often tell Stacy, I don't know that if she hadn't entered the program when she did and, and started a, or went to a women's group and kind of started and helped a women's group. When I entered the program in that same area, you know, years later, I was able to immediately access a women's only group, you know, and had she not done that work, I don't know that that would have been there for me. And, uh, and so, and I feel the same way about you, you know, just the pioneering work that you've done for women and continuing to do for women. Um, I'll make sure that we link, <coughs> sorry, <coughs> I'll make sure that we link uh, in the show notes to to the Bethesda Workshops website Thank so you. that you can get more information if that's of interest for our listeners. Yeah. And Marnie, we will definitely have you back. Thanks. Sounds wonderful. I'm so grateful for Marnie and for her willingness to come on and share her knowledge and her expertise and the programs that she offers for women. Um, These pioneers that went decades before us and, and really paved the way for us to be able to access more resources for women. I'm so grateful for them and their experiences and their stories. Please remember that no matter what is going on in your life, no matter how far down you think you've gone, no matter where you're at um, in your recovery journey, you are worth recovery, 100% worth it. 
Um, if you don't believe that, you can trust me until you do, because I know that. Um, remember that I think about you, I pray for you, and I love you. Until next time, Amy. stuff. The mission of Worth Recovery is to dispel shame and build hope in the lives of women struggling with and recovering from sex addiction. I am not associated with any 12-step group, religious organization, or therapeutic clinic. I am an addict sharing my own experiences and recovery.